0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made. My name is Olivia, and each week on this podcast, we go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to learn how things get made and the stories of the unsung heroes who make them. Today on the podcast, I'm so excited to be joined by Gary Campbell, who is now the showrunner and EP for the return of Kids in the Hall reboot on Amazon TV. This was such a great episode because Gary is just such a wealth of knowledge. He gives amazing advice on what makes an amazing sketch comedy show. And of course, we talk all things Kids in the Hall and the legacy that they have left. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Gary. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's such a pleasure to have you. I'm so excited to talk all about Kids in the Hall and and whatever else that comes our way.
1: Oh sure. Yeah, you uh, again, I'm I will follow your lead.
0: <laughs> Perfect. So
1: I got to say it, I mean the timing of this has worked out nicely cuz uh, obviously the show just dropped yesterday, but good lord, the reviews. Um like it's I it's one of those things where I knew the show was good, but I'm also used to you know not really understanding show business and so just because I know something is good doesn't mean I know anything. Uh, <laughs> so it's just weird that this is the first time in a while where what I thought is lining up with, with how the world is receiving it kind of, which is awesome. So I'm yeah. kind of, I'm glowing a little bit over it. It's just, it's just <laughs> kind of like you read these reviews and they're saying all those things that we said in the writer's room on day one, the things we wanted it to be and the things we wanted it to achieve. And it's just wild that people are seeing that, you know, that's, Again, I, I, I'm sure you've talked to lots of people in the industry, and you're, you are in the industry, so it's, it's, it doesn't happen like that very often. Everybody on the inside, I know, keeps talking about what a miracle it is, and that it is kind of that, and for all those reasons. I mean, it's a TV show, movie, whatever. It's going to train wreck probably on a daily basis, you know? And, yeah. uh, and that's, I mean, that's the business. I mean, anybody that doesn't understand that, oh, boy, you got some problems in front of you. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I think we're just lucky. We just, you know, at right time, right place, right people, mm-hmm. you know, and I've been doing this long enough that I've kind of, I know enough, and again, I'm not always right and I don't always get it right, but surround yourself with people who can just deal with that stuff. You, you, you know what I mean? Like that don't fall apart when things fall apart because it's going to fall apart. It's, it just will. So I, I love having people around me that are just like, yeah, we just deal with it. You know, like this happened. We're not going to waste any time weeping. We're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna fix it and move on. And so I think that's partly why we got where we got is that I just had good people around me who were just like, if something came up, they offered solutions as opposed to, you know, commiserating in my pain. You know, it's just so feeling very good right now.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! So, if you don't mind, can we take it back to the beginning sure. and start there? I read in an interview that you described yourself as a somewhat shy and awkward uh, you know, <laughs> kid growing up. And so I'm wondering how that shy, awkward kid found himself in an
1: improv group. It's the, you know <laughs> what? I wonder all the time. (laughs) Like honestly, it it baffles me. And first of all, back I don't know how I ended up in a drama class in high school. I don't know how that happened. That that doesn't make any sense to me. I couldn't go go up to the counter with stuff that I got in a Seven Eleven and talk to the the person working the counter. I couldn't do that stuff. I was just I was just painfully shy, and still am in more ways that I think anyone would believe. But but um, somehow I ended up in drama, and somehow I ended up getting up on stage. There's no easy answer to that, because it, honestly, it's, it's like this weird thing that happened to me that I don't understand. Uh, everything in my life comes from that, comes from however I found the courage to get past my, uh, yeah, painful shyness and my uh, terrible social awkwardness and actually get up in front of people. And I will say that that was the thing. And maybe I discovered this in high school, but as soon as I'm up in front of people, I'm OK. It's all the anticipation it's all that stuff leading up to it I feel physically sick before a performance before um, before you're actually before showtime but once it starts you, you just you just fall into some kind of zone um, and uh, you know when you start working with the right people and I met the guys in the kids in the hall really early uh, I was still I mean fresh out of high school I think when I met Martin McKinney I was doing again how and why of this I don't know but I was doing an amateur, like a, a local production of Hotel Baltimore, the Lanford Wilson play. And I had a very small part, but in it being the comedy nerd that I was, I had a, uh, a moment where I did a double take. And I worked on that double take. I mean, I, again, I'm not an actor, and I don't consider myself to be one. I'm a writer. But uh, I worked hard on this thing. And after the show, there were a couple of guys that had hung around afterwards to say hi, and one of them was Mark McKinney. And the first thing he said was, nice double take. Um, and I was like, yeah, worked on it. And that was how we met. You know, and I was, I was, I don't know, I couldn't have been much more than 20 at that point. And I have, you know, I, again, been working with Mark now for, well, 40 years, which is, which is wild. So, but to circle back to the actual question you asked, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how I overcame that. I must have done something. Uh, there must have been some decision, but... But I don't recall it.
0: So do you think that that played a role in you ultimately finding your strength as a writer, kind of avoiding the stage potentially a little bit?
1: Oh, yeah. I This, this I do remember about when I was younger. I was never considered to be the, uh, the class clown, the, 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 the funny guy in the class. Well, I, I guess I was when I was older. But when I was younger, but I was the guy that was whispering those things into the, the ear of the class clown. <sighs> And that's, and that's not even a metaphor. I literally was doing that. I literally would be going, the teacher leaves the room, and I'm whispering in the ear of the kid sitting next to me what we should do while he's out of the room. Because I had the ideas, but I, I was I was never going to execute them. I was never, I didn't have that kind of courage um, and I, or that kind of personality. So I would tell the person that I knew did have it, uh, and then they would do it. And again, that's kind of been my career, is you know sort of working with the people that can do those things and are those kind of people. And I whisper in their ear, you know, what might be a funny way to do it? That makes me sound evil, but uh, (laughs) uh, I sound like Iago or something, but yeah, at an early age, I saw that. So, and I think, I think a variation of that is who I am now.
0: Mm -hmm. So then from, you know, actually being in the audience, which eventually became kids in the hall did you stick with them the whole way up to them getting a TV show or did you diverge from them at all?
1: No, I definitely diverged from them. I, we, I did shows. I was in them when they were, when we first started calling ourselves kids in the hall, but there was a bunch of us, you know, there's probably seven or eight of us all together. Don't ask again, this is the, the, the of memory are, are thick around a lot of this stuff, but we fought a lot, you know, we were young, comedians with very opinionated to me i sometimes look back on those days where you would do a show and then you would stay up half the night arguing about comedy or talking about comedy like that seems like a bizarre life to me now but it's kind of what we were doing but mark mckinney and i mark again one of my oldest dearest friends now but we were driving each other crazy when we were in our early 20s uh there was a, yeah there was a Period And eventually I just went, I just don't want to fight anymore. Um, so I walked away from the group just before Scott joined. So Scott, when Scott joined, they kind of solidified into this unit and became what they currently are. Yeah, so I, I walked away for a while. Never walked away completely. I still saw them socially, and I we still hung out, but I wasn't actively in the group. And then I, I think year three maybe of the TV show, they finally got around to asking me to come in as a writer. And since then... I've never really laughed. I mean, uh, you know, I did some time with them on, on Brain Candy. I helped them develop a story for Death Comes to Town. I've done three or four shows with Bruce. I've done three or four shows with Mark. I mean, if they ask, I'll and I'm available. I'll I'll, I'll be there. So whatever, you know, it, it was a ver- it's a version and a much milder version of what they've gone through themselves. You know, like I where I, it's kind of like, oh, this is just too this is too contentious for me and life is too short and I, I'm not having fun right now. And where it's comedy, it should be fun. So I left for a little while, but you know, once I drifted back, yeah, no, I've always been sort of involved in, in one way or another, and then super involved in this latest show, obviously.
0: So, okay. So now here we are all these years later with kids in the hall and you're bringing it back for uh, another season. What was that conversation like between you and everybody? and the gang was it their idea did the idea come from an external force it
1: was it was their idea I think I think I think they've been getting along so well lately and and sort of it sounds terrible but but true Uh, enjoying each other's company and feeling like maybe if there was ever going to be a time now is the time so they were kind of floating that idea out into the ether they approached me after they'd already gotten the deal set up and honestly and this is the truth. It was a long time before I realized I was the showrunner. A long time, like shockingly months into the process. Because I, I just, you know, it was one of those things where I think Bruce had maybe called me and said, hey, we're, we're, we're doing another, we're bringing back the sketch show. Do you want to be involved? And I was like, "Oh, of course. Are you kidding me? Sure. So in my head, I thought I was going to come into the writer's room and help with the writing and just sort of help. You know, just uh, that's what I thought it was going to be. And then I get there, and that's what it was. I mean, it was just it was just the the small group of us sort of throwing ideas around and talking about what we wanted the show to be and how we, you know, pretty early we had, you know, we knew that we just wanted it to be season six, which I think that's if we if we really hard succeeded at anything, we succeeded at that. Anyway, I it was only after I'd been there a month or so when I realized why am I on the phone with Amazon all the time and why am I why am I every time there's one of these meetings. Gary should take it. I, I I thought, well, I'm doing all the showrunner stuff, but nobody has ever said the word showrunners to me or executive producer or like anything. They, it was just, it wasn't until honestly, probably a year after we had all started it because we took a little time down after during COVID because there was a point where we were going to start up, but we would have been like the first show starting um, with all the, the various pandemic protocols in place. And we just didn't want to do that. We didn't. We didn't. You know, we are a bunch of 60-year-old guys. We just didn't want to sort of be guinea pigs as well. And Amazon was fine. Amazon was very nervous about it as well. So they, they said, fine, well, let's, let's wait until some of this uh, gets sorted out. So it wasn't until we got word that, you know, the next year, this would be 2021, I guess, and that we were a go and we had pr- firm production dates. That I I finally went to Broadway Video and I said, hey, what am I? because and they were like oh no no no! no, no yeah we were just doing a paperwork and we were going to call you about that we were gonna have that conversation you you know you clearly you're the showrunner And I'm like no well nobody Is it clear <laughs> no not not in the slightest so it was it was a very weird beginning of it for me it doesn't really change creatively anything I mean we I was in the writer's room and I've been doing this long enough I guess that I, I tend to you know, running a writers' room is something that I've been doing forever now, for like twenty years, and I love it. It's my it's my favorite thing, and I think it's one of the things that I'm. If I have any particular uh, real strength, it's that. You know, uh, so that was fine, and I and I always thought, well, I, I I tend to gravitate towards being that person anyway. So that was all fine. It's just it's just show running is a, a whole different thing. That's you know that's a so it was a, it was a weird beginning, not unpleasant, mm-hmm. but just very very typical of how this show sort of came out the gate. It was all very, here we are and it's exciting, but what's happening? (laughs) You know, exactly. And because of COVID, it took so long. Like we, you know, we did, we wrote most of the show in 2020 and then took a break, you know, for almost a year before we actually came back and, you know, looked at the material we wrote and said, okay, you know, what do we still love? What do we not love? What do we want to change? and got you know got serious about it mm-hmm. so it was it was it was kind of a strange process and i mean i've never been on a show like that where production takes a break you know for the better part of a year but uh it doesn't seem to have impacted the show mm-hmm.
0: so i want to pick up on one thing you said there about you know what you think makes a good writer's room what do you think you know what kind of sk- skills do you like to see from the person leading the helm
1: I always say a showrunner's job is not to be the smartest guy in the room and it's not to be right all the time. And a showrunner's job, as far as I'm concerned, and again, it's a million things, but primary it's creating an atmosphere where people not only can do their best work, but want to do their best work. That's number one on any show. And, And again, I've been in so many circumstances where I wasn't even on the radar for the people at the top. And it's just, It's so hard. It's so hard when people don't understand that uh, a little respect and kindness goes a long way. And at the end of the day, we're, we're not this machine. We're a bunch of people, you know, and everybody in that room has to be seen as, as an individual. You're part of a bigger thing. I mean, that's the other thing about a writer's room. The best writer's rooms should be better and smarter than any single person in it. Like it should be, like that collective brain should be way smarter than any of the individual components of it. And in the best writer's rooms, it has been that way. It's like, it's, and it's, and that goes back to what the kids in the hall are. I mean, I said it over and over and over again to Amazon and and to the guys. And, you know, my job more than anything was to protect the five flavors of those guys. It's not like, you know, most shows, You know, there's a a lead or two leads or there's a concept of the show that needs to be sort of adhered to and protected and and make sure that you're hitting that at all times. Whereas with Kids in the Hall, there's these five flavors and I had to make sure that those five flavors were present, you know, and that and that one wasn't overwhelming another and that we weren't because to me, that's what the show was. The show was five guys who each brought something unique to the table. And if we lose any of those voices, we don't have the show. We don't, it's not kids in the hall anymore. And I'm really happy about that. I'm really happy that we managed to do that. And that's a showrunner's job too. A showrunner's job is to protect, because a showrunner isn't always a creator. I mean, I've been brought in on lots of other people's projects. And my job is, again, not to make it a Gary Campbell show. My job is to make it the best show that whatever, the, whoever created it, try and help them achieve that. And kids in the hall are no different. And with the kids in the hall, one of the differences is, I have to help them achieve it even against their own better judgments kind of sometimes. you know what I mean? Like sometimes sometimes they're not their own best friends. And that was really important for me to sort of be the one that recognizes each of them. Um, that, that doesn't favor one over another and it doesn't favor one's material over another. And that hears all their voices. And I think, again, I, I'm sure they would tell you this as well. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in a u- unique position in that I've known them for so long. You know, Kevin and I were roommates back in the late 80s. Socially, professionally, I was just kind of a good person for that because I, I, I could handle, I knew what their idiosyncrasies were and are. I knew what the potentials for conflict were where they, were those potential areas were. So I was able to, I mean, not always diffuse them, but at least I knew what they were when they were happening, you know, and, and, and didn't, I was about to say, I didn't take it personally. Of course I took it personally. Sometimes. <laughs> um, but, but I didn't let it derail anything. I, you know, I didn't let it get in the way of, of the job. Um, because I recognize that this is who they are, you know, and, and again, it's like with all of us, right? You know, our strengths and our weaknesses are so closely intertwined. Sometimes those weaknesses are so tied to whatever it is that makes them great that and I'm not saying you have to encourage bad behavior, but you have to at least understand that it's part of what makes them tick. Anyway, that was my job. My job was to be sort of that guy, that guy that, that could sort of talk to all of them equally and they being who they are I don't know very many people. This sounds. I I, I don't do this. I don't uh, sort of toot my own horn, ever. And my wife wishes I did way more of it. But but I think I was the right person at the right time for this for this gig. Um, and it has as much to do with me personally as it does to do with me professionally. If that makes yeah. sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It does. So I'm curious, you know, to hear your take on the process of deciding what this revival would be like, because, of course, especially in recent years, we've seen a ton of nostalgia shows and some of them have been a lot more successful than others. And I was reading an interview and I can't remember who said it. I feel like it was Scott who kind of slighted friends (laughs) for just coming back and all talking about friends rather than bringing new material to screen. So what was that process like? You know, how did you decide that you were going to pick up where you left off? Well,
1: that was just, I mean, that was a group decision. And that came out really early. I mean, we all felt that way. I mean, it's, that's the, one of the reasons why we were together in the first place way back in the eighties the and nineties is that we did have certain commonalities. There were certain areas that, that we all just kind of, we didn't talk about them, but we were on the same page. And the idea that this would just be a continuation of the show, that was I don't even know who first said that or if anyone just said that. I think we all just knew that's what we wanted to do. It was we didn't want to we didn't want to look like we were trying really hard to be the new and improved Kids in the Hall or Kids in the Hall 2022. We didn't want to be that. We just wanted to be another season of the show like we picked up where we left off. So that was an easy decision. Nobody, nobody felt differently about that. And that again, that was, that was the joy of those first few weeks in the writer's room is that there were tons of those little decisions that were made that it was just nice to see, right. We're all still on the same page about that stuff. Yes. We'll bring back some recurring characters from the show, but we don't want it to just be that, you know, we don't want it to be, you know, and, and having said that, I would still say there's more of them in the show now than I would have liked and that's just a that's just me personally. I I think it was important to um have new characters and and new ideas and that were sort of more representative of who we are now and 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 reflect today without pandering to today because that's what the I mean the show was a weird reflection of of its time. Um and I feel like it again having read a bunch of reviews now over the last couple of days, I feel like people are seeing that, yeah, we're still, that's still what we're doing. We're still weirdly reflecting the world just by doing the stuff that we think is funny. Um, And that's, that's the other key to it too, is like, we have long known you can't anticipate or please uh, an audience. You have to just do what you think is funny, period. Uh, Anything else is madness. I mean, I've, my whole career, I've been telling young writers, you can't anticipate your audience don't don't be you know don't be stubborn and contrary and, and and work against them but the only sort of voice that you should be listening to really is yourself you know like that's the only way you're going to achieve any kind of I was going to say greatness but that's way too grandiose but but you know what I mean it's the only way you're going to do good work is if you're listening to yourself you know like it's uh, otherwise I just run into so many people who it's all about. What do you think the audience wants these days? And I'm like, oh, there's you can never you can never know that. You can never predict that, and it changes all the time. You just have to do what is important to you. I mean, if, what's that thing you're, you're supposed to write what you know? No, no, <laughs> write write what you care about. You know what I mean? If we if we only wrote what we knew, oh, how dull it would be. You know, like. <laughs> You have to write the things that you can get fired up about. And that's what the kids in the hall are really good at, too. Like, you know, like even the goofiest things, there's a little something in there that may never be apparent to you really, but it's there. And it's something that we care about, you know, as a as a as an entity. That's so important. And we we've never had a problem with that. I've never you know, I've never had to (laughs) say to any of the kids, you know, stop pandering. They don't. It's not something they do. So that I mean, in the early days of the writing writers' room, that was easy too. It was just like you sit around, you throw out ideas, and you're trying to make the other guys around the table laugh. You're trying to make that that hive mind giggle. It was it was there immediately, like it was there day one. You know, that's what, and that was the other thing that COVID derailed a little bit. We we were in person in a writers' room for about three weeks before COVID hit, and then all of a sudden we couldn't be in a room together. So thank God for those first three weeks where we got so much done and so many great ideas came out of it because once you start doing zoom writers meetings, there's, you know, I, I have some, I have friends that are improvisers that they do improvise shows on zoom. And I just, I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around it. Like if you're not live feeding off that energy of the room, not to mention it's so much harder to read the room online than it is when you're there in person and that's such an important part of a writer's room is also reading the room know when your idea when you've lost everybody and or or they're not into it move on and that online got trickier so again we were really lucky that we had i don't know what it was three or four weeks before we had, had to be sequestered into our own hotel room
0: so i'm curious about the differences between um you know working with uh, hbo and cbc way back in the early nineties and late eighties and then working with Amazon and the whole, like, I mean, so much about how we consume TV has changed, you know, did, did it affect you or to have you noticed, I mean, obviously you've been working in the industry this whole time, but you know, how, how are you seeing this new age of streaming and and the industry?
1: I love aspects of it. I mean, I love that it feels like it's far more creator driven now. Mm -hmm. Like I think, I think people's—I hate the word—but people's visions, I think, are 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 making it to the screen a little more undiluted than they than they used to be. Like that sort mm-hmm. of, I think the streamers have taken away an aspect of of creation by committee, somewhat. Now, and now, and now I'm going to directly contradict that because <laughs> when we first—I actually had this conversation with Amazon—we sent them the first batch of sketches, and we got. I'm probably exaggerating, but only slightly like 30 pages of notes back. And I, I sent them an email or got on the phone. I can't remember. But anyway, I, I spoke to them just saying, jokingly, I said, you know, this is the first time I've ever received a set of notes that had an appendix, you, you know, and, and that's not a joke. There was an appendix. And it was because most of the notes weren't creative. And this is where I think things have really changed and, and, um, I can go on about the pendulum swinging and 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 my feelings about it, but essentially, it was they have all these focus groups and, and sorry, not even focus groups, it's things like GLAD, all these organizations that weigh in on everything, and it's all about sensitivities. It's all about you know uh, trying to not step into anything uh, of this day and age. Which again, I will speak briefly about pendulum. As far as I'm concerned, it's it's kind of like the climate now is there's been a pendulum over here forever, and that wasn't right. Now it's over here, also not right, but I feel like it has to swing over here now to compensate for the 100 years that it was over here before it will end up in the middle where it should be. That's just the reality of where we live, and and you can argue about the fairness of it all day long, but I really think we have to, I think we have to overcompensate a little bit to fix things. Unfortunately, yes, we, Amazon is a corporation. So they legally have to sort of overcompensate all the time. And we, and we, we had to deal with that. We had to deal with the fact that, you know, I like to, I like to argue about intent and I like to argue about context because when you're doing satire and kids in the hall is, At heart, satirical, you have to be able to portray some of those things that you're satirizing. Otherwise, it's just people complaining about stuff. You know, the the beauty of great satire to me is you're presenting ridiculous people doing ridiculous things. But if you can't actually show them doing those ridiculous things, then all of a sudden, I don't know what we're doing. You know, like, and so there's a little bit of that in the initial list. I don't blame anybody for it. I understand where we're at. I understand what's happening. But that was certainly a frustration initially was like, how are we satirical when we can't sort of honestly present the things we're satirizing? You know, we, we can't, if we're, if we, if the whole point of a sketch is to sort of point out reprehensible behavior, you have to show that reprehensible behavior, and we and we're kind of in a time right now where that's tricky, um, and it certainly was tricky on this show. It was like, you know, it was just like we no, you can't do that. And I'm like, but we're not, we are on the side of the angels on this one. I kept saying that was my, one of my battle cries, and it just didn't matter, you know. I, and I realized it, it, there were just places and areas of content that you just couldn't go to, um, that were because they were problematic they were forever going to be problematic for these guys and they just weren't they weren't it was a hard line and again i'm not this is not me saying oh it's so unfair or stupid i i recognize that it's where we're at right now a little bit you know And, and and again i think i think some of these lines have to be drawn to protect and nurture valuable things um you know um so i get it but it was frustrating and again from a from a satirical point of view it's hard because i i don't know i just i feel like you can get away with things in like a dramatic show that in a comedy it was a little harder to and comedy man you know that that satirical voice is so important to comedy and it's so important to the kids and all and again we got away with a lot i this makes it sound like we got crushed we did not there were certain sketches and certain ideas that i could have argued justifiably and righteously for for days because we were right we were they were not on the wrong side of history we just had to kind of go okay all right we we can't do that I mean it's I understand that there's a word you know there's a certain word that we said on the show back in the day we can't say it now I get that but can't we have fun with the idea that we can't say it anymore um you know what I mean can't we and it's like no we can't couldn't even do that it was just like is tricky because to me, like, you want to talk about those things. I mean, we did we did a little bit. We wanted to talk about how times have changed between then and now, and in some cases, in some of the more sort of, for me anyway, interesting cases, we could not because we just couldn't open that box, no matter what our intentions were, no matter how smart we maybe thought the idea was. Didn't matter. And um, there's just there's just areas that you can't go to at the moment.
0: I am curious, you know, if you can give us a little bit of insight on what makes a good comedy sketch show and how to actually craft a successful comedy sketch
1: show. First of all, and this is something that the kids and all have in spades, is point of view. Uh, You know, without without a strong point of view, I don't know what you're doing. You you, you know what I mean? Like, it's, and it's that, it's that shared mindset that I've seen groups, right, just kind of go, I don't know what you're I don't know what your thing is. I don't know. I don't know what you guys care about. I don't know what. And kids and all clearly cared about a bunch of things and clearly had, you know, I, I was talking about the protecting the five voices, but there was one voice too. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's super important. You know, like that was, that was my problem. I did mad TV for many years, way back in the day. And we did great stuff. There was some stuff I'm extremely proud of, but there was also a lack of, coherence so they're just you know it, these were people that had been plucked from various places and thrown onto a show and maybe they had chemistry maybe they didn't some did some didn't you know and it was so you there was always an element of trying to force something and it never felt like it had that that overarching point of view either you know it's like we were just kind of doing whatever was funny and as I said man again I, when I left that show I was trying to put together a reel and I realized Oh, man, I just asked the editors to put together like 200 sketches for me. I did lots of stuff that I really liked, but it, but it wasn't the same as Kids in the Hall. It just, you know, Kids in the Hall, it was like you knew what a Kids in the Hall sketch was. I I couldn't really tell you what a Mad TV sketch was. Like, not really, other than everything. So point of view, first and foremost, which I guess leads into the next thing, is just what makes you giggle, You know, like it's if it doesn't make you laugh, then why are you wasting any time on it? Like it's if you're trying to intellectually figure out what might be funny to other people, you're going about it the wrong way. I live for the moments when I'm in front of my laptop typing and I start to giggle at something that I've just written. That's the best. And that's when I know that is bulletproof what I just wrote. You know, it's like and it it doesn't mean it's the best thing. It doesn't mean It's genius. It just means it's right. It's, it was the right thing. I found the right thing and I was able to word it the right way that it made me giggle. You know, and what, what makes you laugh and not, not worrying about the network, not worrying about the audience, any of that stuff? Like, and I, and I, again, I've been on shows where it's like you're, spent, you're sitting at a table and you realize that's what's being talked about. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't waste a second on that because, as I said earlier, that's madness. There's no, you can never figure that out. So that's what makes it a good sketch show. A, a, does it make you laugh? Does it have a strong point of view? Well, obviously, talented sketch performers. I mean, I've worked on shows where I was brought in, you know, and I won't, I won't, oh, I don't want to name names. <laughs> um, but where I was assured, oh, X and X, no, they're really good sketch performers really great. And then you get there. Oh, and they're not, you know, they do one or two things funny. I did a, okay. I can't name them Cause I don't, I don't care. I did a very short lived variety show with Roseanne um, back in the nineties. And it was terrible from the get go. And I went straight from kids in the hall to that. So I went straight from hanging out with my friends, giggling and doing exactly what we wanted to do to going down to hollywood and i'm in a big studio and it's roseanne and she's insane and insane or projecting insane i couldn't tell from day to day some days i just felt like it was all part of a show but um she wasn't a good sketch person she just wasn't i remember sitting in an editing room with the editor saying i can see the fear in her eyes you know and 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 it's like oh yep yeah i know i know i'm trying to cut around it but it's there for the whole thing it's a it's a it's in every take it just wasn't a natural fit for her. So finding people, and again, kids in the hall, good Lord, they were, they're built for sketch. Um, yeah. They're you know, fearless. It's, it's <laughs> what they do best. You know, like, again, I can, I don't want to, I don't want to pick favorites, but I can watch Mark McKinney trot out a new character any day, all day. Like, it's just, he it, it delights me to no end. And, you know, when I first started improvising, he and I improvised together, and it was just the best. <laughs> he was standing on a stage with Mark McKinney, and and his thing was always it was never about jokes, although he was hilarious. It's about character. He would just dig deep into this character, you know, in a way that that a I never did. I was I was the guy that I planted my feet on the stage and and said funny things, I guess. I never, I never deeply inhabited a character the way Mark did. um, But I'm in awe of it, you know, and and it was the same on this new show. It's like some of my favorite moments are just like, like Mark, Mark pitched a sketch and it was a tough one to, uh, to wrap our heads around. But it's that thing where, again, I've been working with Mark for 40 years now. So when he says, trust me, I'm going to trust him, you know, and we'll, and we'll figure it out. And, i love the sketch now and it's great in the show but i remember sit with a director sitting in the room going what is this like what I, I, you know trying to figure out how to shoot it and he ended up kelly macon shooting it brilliantly but it took a long time for us all to wrap our heads around what mark had presented us with because it was just a bizarre character piece all the other guys were just kind of like what please just tell us what's funny about this you, you, you know and it, and again, it worked out in the end, but it worked out because I just, I trust Mark, you know, and I know that I can tell when he's not sure about something, you know what I mean? But I, I can also tell when he's sure about it. You know, if he's, if he says, no, no, it's there, then I, I trust him. It's like, um, I don't know if you've heard the story of uh, Martin Scorsese worked, uh, he did Color of Money. I don't know if you remember that movie with Tom Cruise and Paul Newman and he all his life, Scorsese had wanted to work with Paul Newman. He, he idolized him, wanted to do a movie with him, finally gets to do Color of Money with him. First day of shooting, he's sitting behind his monitor and he's watching Paul Newman all day. And he's, all day he's going, oh, he's just phoning it in. He's not he's not bringing it. This, I, all my life I've been waiting for this moment. And now, I'm, I'm I, you know, he's, just, he's going on a set and going, Paul, can you bring it up a little bit? And Paul's going, no, no, trust me, it's... This, I'm, I'm in the pocket, and it, so that night Scorsese's sitting in the in the screening room watching the dailies, and it, literally it's that son of a bitch. He's brilliant, and it, and he was right. He was exactly right. All day I was thinking it's not enough. He's underplaying it. He's underselling it. But then when I watch the finished product, when I watch the actual film like on a big screen, it's brilliant. And that's why like, I'm gushing about Mark McKinnon. Uh, but but. But that's how I feel about the guys. Like when they're when they're in the zone, it's just like it's it's fantastic to watch. So that's that's the third thing you need to for a, a successful sketch show. Is you need those guys. You need those people. You need those men and women who are going to show up and uh, elevate the written word. Everything you write. Uh, no, sorry. Let me qualify that. Everything I write because I write I write in a s- certain way that. In the hands of a, of a good actor, it's it can be great, and in the hands of a not great actor, it can be terrible. And you can you can create that's terrible writing. And I'm like, well, yes, it seems that way because it it, it and, and it's hard for me to argue it, you know. But I also know that the way I write in the hands of the right actor, it's fantastic. I mean, I did a show with McKinney, Less Than Kind. We did a Canadian show years ago. One of my favorite showbiz experiences of all time was working on that show i am so proud of the work that we did but maury chicken was a guy who you would hand him something and you would go oh i hope i hope he sees the rhythm of this i hope he sees the thing and every single time i i'd watch the the finished product and go not only did he see what was there but he found more he elevated it so that's what you want you want those people And, and 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 again the kids in the hall are, you know, if nothing else, they're great sketch actors. You know, Kevin is the first one to tell you that he's not an actor, but he's a great sketch actor. I know there shouldn't be a qualification to that, but there is a little bit. So yeah, if you don't have that, and again, that goes back to my Mad TV thing, some of those people were great and some of them went on to do great things, but they weren't all sketch people. You know, you can't just take funny people and throw them into sketches. Sometimes that's it's a, it's a specific thing and it's a difficult thing. You know, that's, that's why there's really, you know, there's only a handful of great sketch people, you know, over the last 50 years, well, I guess when we've we been doing sketch, but the kids in the hall are, are right up there, you know, that you need for a great show after that. It's just that it's, it's just that luck and magic, you know, like it's, it's like surrounding yourself with the right crew, you know, you, directors that you don't have to explain what's funny. Ugh. I remember being on set once. This was on a different sketch show. And I had a director who just wasn't a comedy guy. He just just wasn't. And I had, I spent 20 minutes on set arguing with him. And I'm not a big arguer. I, I'm not a yeller, but, you know, so calmly hmm. arguing with him about why if a guy's shooting out a window and he drops his gun out the car window, it's in that heat of the moment, it's way funnier to see him. Leaning out the car window, trying to grab the gun off the ground, than it is for him to open the door and grab the gun. To me, and that's such a no-brainer. But this guy didn't get it. He just and he kept saying, "Well, why doesn't he just open the door and grab it?" It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I just kept and, and it was that lame me just going, "It's funnier in the moment <laughs> if he's leaning way out the window trying to grab it." You know, eventually he realizes it's ridiculous and he opens the door and grabs his gun. But. You have to have him trying to lean out the window to grab it when it's clearly impossible to, that's the comedy of it. Um, so finding the people that you don't have to explain that to them is also very helpful, you know? And again, we had that on the show. We had people, directors um, who understood comedy and understood what was funny. And we're going to, and we're going to come to you with comedic suggestions that made sense, you know, that, or the, or the, and that were in the right Vain too. They they weren't like from a completely different sketch or a completely different genre. They were they were they were dialed into what we were doing, which was awesome. So finding those people too to support it is also huge. Mm. And then and then a million other things. <laughs> yeah. So you've
0: had a really great long career, and now my understanding is is that you're giving back to the community through mentorship, and you right. have a number of um, you know young writers that you mentor. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I didn't do that for many years. I was so wrapped up with, you know, this is how I give back to the community by doing good work. And that's not the greatest attitude. So yeah, in recent years, it's been like, you know, several projects, if people come to me and and I still have to be able to see something in it, you know what I mean? Like it's, if I, if it's something that's just, I, I read it and I just go, Oh, I can't help you. I, it doesn't speak to me at all. And, uh, and I've gotten pretty good about being that guy about just kind of going, I think there's a, somebody else better than me out there for this project. Cause I just, I don't. Um, but having said that most things I can find a way to get excited about it. So, and it's, it's like, I just, I just spent the last year or so developing a show set on a, a first nations reserve. Um, and it was just, it was a delight. I love the creator. I love the the guy that wrote the thing, but green as can be but a good guy and he had and he had a voice so it's just you know and again that's the stuff that i want you want to succeed you want to have it out there and i'm i'm working with an east indian fellow now on his show and he's less green that that script actually was one of those scripts where i read and i went oh okay this is already really funny and do you guys really need me but they were like oh no no we need you know we need you just sort of from a, from a production sense to be looking at these things. And, uh, and that's fine. Uh, but same thing. I just, it's just, we need, uh, that new young generation of voices. I wish, this is something that, that happens a fair bit. And, and I, I am capable of soapboxing on this a little bit, but, um, I don't get asked, you know, because I'm a middle-aged white man, I don't get asked to help women much unless the women that I know and have worked with, you know, I get asked that all the time, but I, you know, I'm not a young woman who's got a show. I'm not who they're going to turn to because it's just not the way we work right now. And yes, there should be older experienced women out there who can help them with that. But there aren't that many. Uh, It's just, you know, and again, that's part of the problem is that, you know, we generationally have made huge mistakes and not gone about it the right way. So that pool isn't there should be, but isn't. It will be, because I see you know tons of female voices now coming up, but they're all young, and a lot of them are green, and a lot of them could use more experienced people. So I don't get asked to do those things, and I get it. But at the same time, I kind of go, well, making a show is making a show. I, I mean, if it's seen through the prism of a 16-year-old trans person, well, I, I, I count on the director, or sorry, it's the creator, to, to supply that authenticity you know that's that's for them and and I'm always going to listen to them it's their world I you know I but I but I can't help them shape it you know I can't help them I mean what how do you tell a story you know how do you you know all those things that I'm that I really enjoy but we're kind of in an age where I can kind of mentor other guys that's what comes to me but not not the not everybody and it's like you know, I also I also get that we need to just, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know where I'm going with this. No, uh, it, so. it's,
0: it's really interesting. And I think that you're so much of what you're saying is so true that there are there's so much mystery around how to make things. And I'll tell you, you've gone through the process a couple of times, it's it's difficult. And so to the extent that, you know, you can come in having had that experience, it can be extremely helpful, even if you're not, you know, getting to the, (laughs) the core experience. There's a lot of value um, that it's, it's great that you're, you know, giving to so many people.
1: It's important. And again, it's a realization that I came too late, but we have to be thinking about the next generation. We have to be thinking about it's like everything it's, you know, we, we can talk about the climate all day long, but I think, I think we need to be thinking about the next generation in every aspect of our lives. You know, like it's, we're so selfish I I certainly see a lot of it, you know, that's, you know, my biggest issues in this industry over the years have been when I run into those people that have that insanely unhealthy mixture of, of ego and insecurity, Mm -hmm. you see them hand in hand all the time, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, it's not healthy. And it's, and I think looking ahead uh, and that's all mentorship is. It's just looking ahead. It's looking. It's looking to pass your time. You know? you know. I'm just sort of at that point in my life where it's like you have to be thinking about all those things. You know. It's, it's 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 as much about giving people practical tools for how to do what they want to do as it is just encouragement. You know. Just kind of going. No. You, you know. You just stick to what's in your heart. Tell the stories you want to tell. Don't get bullied off the stories that you think are important for you to tell those are the stories you got to tell you, you know like though just those things you know I, I think are that's what I can give to people and kind of say from experience you know the the times where I've compromised in my career when I knew I shouldn't have every single time it's turned around and bit me on the ass because I've and again I'm not saying I'm be unyielding you still have to listen but there's there's times where I went okay this is the wrong decision but we shoot in 24 hours and and i have to they gave me this this and this so i will give them this even though i know it's wrong always a mistake it's always a mistake you know every single time i've regretted it i've gone oh i shouldn't have i shouldn't have, i shouldn't have been doing this i should have just been going no right is right you know I, and in this particular case, if you if you know you're right, and again, I'm not saying I always know I'm right because I don't, but sometimes I do. Sometimes you know when you're right, uh, and you have to stick to that. You know, and, and that's I think a, a valuable thing for young people to hear is that, you know, if you feel strongly that you're about to make a decision that's going to damage your, your your project, don't do it. Don't ever do it. No matter what justifications you. Or rationalizations you find yourself telling yourself just don't just stick with your gut you know your gut is all you've got you know um and as you get older your gut gets smarter you know and that's yeah. just experience you know
0: it's really interesting and and it's it's funny because when i actually first started this podcast i was thinking so pragmatically that I was hoping to help other people, you know, tell their stories and and give other people tools to, um, you know, find their way in the industry. But what I've, the feedback that I've gotten time and time again is, you know, when people speak about a time in their career that was particularly difficult or, you know, some adversity that they faced in the industry. And that's that's the part of it that people really hang on to because that's the part that's so under discussed and difficult. So it's like you say, it's not just giving people the technical support, but also giving people that emotional support and that confidence to persevere through, um, you know, the highs and lows of the industry because they're inevitably coming for you.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's, and that's, but that's an, yeah, you're right. You're right. And that is so important for people to understand that it's, It's like relationships, you know what I mean? And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships or I'm talking about all relationships. The sooner you understand that it's always work, that that it never gets to that point where, ah, I've made it. Um, The sooner you can wrap your head around that, the sooner you can just enjoy it. You know, you just enjoy it for what it is and recognize that you have to be putting work into it at all times forever. And your career is the same thing. It never gets to a point where you just, ah, I'm, unless you're a big star and there's just a handful of them and there's very few in Canada, but unless you get to that point, it's always going to be work and you have to, you have to understand that. You have to understand that, um, you know, my family, my family, they, they think that because I'm in television, I've got it made that I'm rich and I've got it made. And I, and I'm always having to say, guys, I have spent the last 30 years of my life never knowing what I was going to be doing six months from now ever, you know, and again, I'm lucky. I'm one of the fortunate ones. I keep working but there, until I don't, you know, there will come a day, you know, like it's for everybody. It, it, it comes. So you have to understand that too, that it's, there's never, I guess it's like that thing. It's like when people expect anything to be perfect or that, or that, that state exists it never does. You never get there. It's the process. It's the journey. It's, you know, and, and if you can't, if you're waiting for perfection or waiting for that payoff, you're never going to enjoy the ride. You know, and it's and and that I think is a good thing for young people to hear. Is that, you know, like God, I taught once. I'm not I'm not a teacher by nature. So, but um, the one thing that killed me about it, it was all these young people getting into comedy, and they all wanted to know like who they should contact or is there a number <laughs> that I should have? And I was just like,
0: magical number.
1: I know. And I was like, and I was like, man, I don't know anybody that didn't put in their time, you, you know, like every good writer that I know put in their time doing other things. And the, the groundlings in, uh, in LA do an amazing thing. And I loved it. They, um, when you go see a groundling show, in the program, it has the list of the sketches, but then it has it has who's in the sketches, but then it has who wrote the sketches, which I've never seen anybody, any other sketch show ever do. And it was great because you could watch a sketch show and you could kind of look and go, okay, all the sketches I love were written by this person. So let's talk to that person. And you know, like because be when I was on Mad TV and we we're looking to hire new writers, but that's that's how you found them. But all the writers that I like and admire sort of started that way. They, they had to put themselves out into the world somehow, you know, with me, it was with kids in the hall. I was doing shows with those guys, with the audience, kids in the hall. That's how I started as a writer. That was my journey. But I would say easily 90% of the people I know that I respect as writers started in a similar way. They either started as a stand-up, or they started in a sketch troupe or, you know, you saw version of that anyway. And, and, and that's where they learned, a how to develop a, a comedic idea, but also how to read a room, you know, like how to how to read an audience, how to how to kind of, and and more importantly, this is this is what I would get in LA in particular. There's so many writers that just showed up and started writing, and I would I would get a line and they would go, oh, I love that line, and I and, and I would go, yeah, I get why you, I get why it's funny, but I don't understand contextually why this character in this situation in this moment would say it um it doesn't make any that doesn't make any sense to me and it takes me right out of it if you want a, a truly great joke is funny on its own yes but it's also the exact right thing for that character to say or do in that moment and that's so important and then, and i feel like the people who came from a performing background kind of understand that they understand that that line has to exist in a in the context of a scene, in context of whatever story you're telling, whereas people that didn't strike that way, you're just like, "It's a funny line," and it's almost like they built a sketch around the funny line, um, and it doesn't matter to them that it doesn't quite track or there's some something the dots have not been connected. You know, how did I start on this thing?
0: I don't know, but I'm loving it.
1: Oh, I, yeah. Anyway, anyways, <laughs> that's impo- it's, it's so it's so important, you know, like it's. So anyway, yeah, it was about it was about young people, like just just getting them to understand that, like that, that there's no easy way. You you just have to if you can get out there and be part of a troop, take some Second City workshops, take, you know, because that's part of it, too. Part of it is getting yourself into the community. Just make sure you love it. You know, make sure it's something you enjoy doing. And and that's and that's the other thing with with mentoring, I guess, is. And, and uh, you know, you know what, I've never been partnered with anybody that I went, oh, they're here for the wrong reasons. They're always here because they have a story that they want to tell and they have a, uh, a fairly clear viewpoint on that story. So, you know, and that's the stuff that I'm happy to encourage. You know, that, that's you're always not always, but every once in a while you get asked, like, to Canadian something up. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. How do you
0: do that? How does one Canadian something up?
1: <laughs> yeah. it, 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 again, it, it, that falls into the same category. as how do you how do you uh, get inside the head of the audience? You don't. Um, right. I, I I believe that if you're Canadian and you're writing about a story in Canada, it's Canadian. You don't need to Canadian it up. You don't need to. You don't yeah. need to be referencing loonies. And yeah. <laughs> it, it's just all that stuff is just so forced and stupid. So letting them know that too is like, you don't have to, and that's, that's, I find with both the projects that I'm, that I'm helping out with right now, it's a little bit of that too. It's like, you don't have to Mm over-explain, you know, like, yes, you're going to get those notes. You're going to get the notes. are going to say, I don't understand this. And it's like, that's okay. It's okay. If they don't understand it, They, they can look it up or, or it can be, you know, again, you don't have to answer all those questions in the pilot. That's a, that's a, a thing that I find, and that's I'm a good buffer for them on that too. I'm because I, I can go to the network and go, look, no, no, he intends to talk about that in episode four, but we don't need to sort of all of that laid out in in, a, in, in the pilot because then it's a bad pilot. It's just you know it's expository and and also you're talking down to an audience that you shouldn't be talking down to, you know. Um, so that's where I can be helpful too because I know that from experience. It's just like you no. Know, you don't spell out spell out you have to spell out everything that makes them understand the story you're telling in that episode that's it you don't have to spell out every aspect of the world or explain why people say certain things you know particularly in the indigenous world it's like no some of that stuff can be mysterious some of that stuff can just be magical you know like it you guys don't amongst yourselves talk about it you know every time it happens do you you don't so Why, why should you be doing that on the show? It will feel that makes it inauthentic.
0: No, it's super interesting. And I think it's a lot of really good advice for people out there who are, you know, starting to get those notes from the networks and feeling a little uncomfortable in themselves, you know, not, you know, wanting to push back
1: too hard. Well, it's
0: It's a tough balance.
1: It is. And, and and it is a balance. I mean, you want to get your show made, you know, that's, that's I've been there, you know, and and I'm, I'm just saying, give them what you can. If you get a note, and honestly, the note is six of one, half a dozen of the other, take the network note. But if it hurts what you're doing in any way, don't. No, I, I always say, if you can take a note, take it. It, it creates goodwill. It, it, you know, it lets them know you're listening to them and you're respecting their position in this partnership. That, that's all important. But, but again if you've got that little voice inside of you going, Oh no, that, that, that's a mistake. It probably is. And you should, you should just, you know, figure out a way to respectfully tell them that you can't take that note.
0: So my last question for you is, can you recommend a piece of Canadian content that you love? Easily. Well, obviously kids them all.
1: <laughs> no, no, but easily I can recommend less than kind. Less than kind to me is one of the great shows of the last 20 years or whatever that, I was shocked. I remember sitting there with the, with the guy who owned the production company one time and getting the numbers of people that were watching the show. And I didn't think you could have such low numbers and still be on the air. I didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. And, and it shocked me because the show was so good. And everyone I knew that had seen it loved it, but you couldn't find it. And you can't find it now. I, I think maybe, oh, I want to say season one might be on Netflix Although why season one is on there and not the other three is baffling to me. Yeah. But if you can track down that show, it's a great show. And it's and it's everything I like to do. Like, like to me, when you watch that show, it's a comedy, yes. But is it? You know, I mean, now we, we and, I, and again, it's a word that people aren't comfortable with, and I'm only slightly comfortable with it, but the word dramedy. But I, I think that's what shows should be. You know, because that's what life is. You know, life is, is hilarious and tragic and insane. It's, it's, it's all those things. And I think you can do all those things in a half hour, as long as you're true to your story and your characters. And you can do all this. And shows should do all that. It shouldn't just be one thing. And I think if, if television's gotten better at anything over the last 20 years, it's that. It's like I see shows now that I, I, it, they're hard to categorize. And that's great because it should just be a, a good show or not a good show. And Less Than Kind was one of those, like a, to me, it was that was an early instigator of this kind of storytelling that d- didn't get its due. It just, it just hardly anybody saw it. I mean, you know, we, we won the uh, Gemini's or CSA's account. I think it was a little of both, but we won best show every year. And now if you were at the Emmys and, and your show won best sitcom. Like three years or four years in a row, whatever it was for Less than Kind, you'd be a number one show. But we wanted three or four years in a row and we're unknown, which I, I, that's the part of Canadian broadcasting that I just don't understand at all. I just, I don't know how that works. But so anyway, the answer to your question is Less than Kind, it's a great show
0: yeah oh wonderful well gary it's been such a pleasure speaking with you
1: again the more the more we have people talking about canadian shows the better you know
0: a hundred percent there's so much good content here and i mean it's it's getting a little bit easier with streaming to get get it out there
1: there's only two shows i think that amazon canada has done so far Scripted shows. There's that. Yes. And The Lake, which is coming out soon.
0: Yes, of course.
1: Oddly enough, is is uh, executive produced by uh, my neighbor who I could walk there in like three minutes. Oh, that's hilarious. I live in the country. (laughs) I live in the the middle of nowhere.
0: (laughs) It's like Hollywood North.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah.